right. So this last week, we started the introduction to the book of Galatians. And I know that introductions should probably not take two weeks, but for me, they take at least two weeks. So we are going to finish our introduction tonight. So I want to take just a few moments, and we are going to reset the table, bring everybody back up to speed. There might be some new people in the room. I want to make sure that we don't move past this moment without everybody being on the same page. So the key verse in the book of Galatians is Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. That verse simply says... It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Galatians is a book about freedom. Last week, we gave four different facets of what that freedom is like. It is either addressing attacks against freedom, how the gospel brings freedom, warnings about losing freedom, or encouragement to embrace freedom in Christ. So this particular focus on freedom that we find within the book of Galatians is absolutely helpful for every believer if they want to understand Jesus' statement when he said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And the question we asked is, how free is free indeed? Is it free from the penalty of sin? as long as you follow the laws and the rules of religion? Is it free from ultimate punishment in hell as long as you follow all of these other guidelines here? Like how free is free indeed? So Galatians explores the depths of that freedom. It is a book that is going to upset a lot of people who want to cling to their self-righteousness and their self-effort. But it is also a book that is going to encourage a lot of people who have never felt as though they could live up to this idea in their mind of what a Christian is supposed to be. It's a book that frees people and encourages people. Either way, most people do not walk away from the book of Galatians neutral. They're either going to be really mad or really happy. I'm hoping you're going to go for really happy by the time we're done. So last week, we approached the book of Galatians, and I said, we're going to do it from several different angles. We're going to kind of come in with a 30,000-foot view. Then we're going to focus on verses 1 through 5 as a unit, as the introduction itself. And then we're going to dig into specific statements or words or ideas that are found in these first five verses. So from a 30,000-foot view, the theme is that true freedom only comes through Christ. And the Apostle Paul, he deals with freedom on two fronts. In chapters 3 and 4, he talks about freedom that comes through salvation. And chapters 5 and 6, he addresses freedom that comes through sanctification. If you'll remember, he did not even get into this topic for the first two chapters because he had to defend his apostolic credentials. He had to come right out the gate and say, here's why you need to listen to me. And he spent two chapters on that. So now, when addressing verses 1 through 5 as a unit, as the introduction, we saw that this introduction is different than any of the other introductions that Paul writes other letters to other churches, primarily because of what is left out. There is no word of commendation for the believers in Galatia. Most of the other letters that he writes, he's always saying, when I think of you, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged about your your walk of faith and your labor of love. I love you with love from Jesus. I mean, he's always encouraging. Here, he jumps right into the problems that prompted the letter. 
He says in verses 6 and 7, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Only there are some who are disturbing you, and it is a disturbance to a true believer when the gospel is being shaken. And they want to distort the gospel of Christ. The Galatian churches were under theological attack. The heart of the gospel was at stake. The gospel of grace was being replaced with a gospel according to works. And the apostle Paul tells believers in no uncertain terms, that is not a gospel at all. In fact, it is a distortion of the gospel, and it leads to damnation and not towards freedom. So while we were working through that last week, we finished with asking this major question. What is the context of Galatians? And remember, the context includes the writer, the audience, the setting, the purpose, the genre, or the style of the writing. Now, let me stop here for just a moment. Why is it important we even bring that up? Because when you're dealing with different genres in the Bible, you have some pieces that, like this, they are letters, they are epistles written to specific churches. Most of the time, they're addressing specific issues that those churches were going through. Then you have the Gospels. That's historical narrative. Then you go over in the Old Testament. You will have different apocalyptic writings, or you will have wisdom literature. It's important that you know the genre because it's within that that you help understand the interpretation. So when you go in the Old Testament, it says something like this. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Is it just a thousand hills? Like all the other hills somebody else owns the cattle on? Or is it basically a statement of the immensity of God's wealth? It's using poetic language to capture an idea that, that he owns it all. Whenever you're reading a section like this, it's important to know that this is going to be on the side of an epistle. It's writing specifically to address issues within this church. So what was the context? Here it is very quickly. The author is the Apostle Paul. The reason it's important that we pause on that for a moment is because when he describes the difference between the gospel of grace and the gospel according to works, he's a guy who could speak on that subject with authority because he lived under both. That is, he was born into works and he was called into grace. So Paul's authority to speak goes beyond just personal experience. He also says he has authority to speak as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle is one who is sent with a commission, an envoy, an ambassador, a messenger. And he tells us in this text he was not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. The false teachers had accused him of not being an actual apostle. They said you are a self-appointed apostle. And he basically says, nope, I was called to this by Christ, by the Father. And the reason is important. If your position was conferred by man, it can be revoked by man. And this he's saying, you cannot revoke what you did not confer. So Galatians was written around AD 49. No reason to recap all that we talked about there. If you want more information, go back and watch the video from last week. How about that? Just making sure you're paying attention. Next one. The audience was the churches of Galatia. 
And that is on the Apostle Paul as well as on Barnabas' first missionary journey. They established four churches in the region of Galatia. They were in the southern part. The cities were Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. It is believed that he is addressing churches specifically there because it talks later in chapter 4 about him personally being there. There's a personal connection in that. So we ended this last week with the purpose was to confront Judaizers, restate the essence of the gospel, and to challenge Christians to embrace their freedom in Christ. The Judaizers, as I said last week, were an extremist Jewish faction that had settled into the early church. This was a group that taught that Gentile Christians had to submit to Jewish law and Jewish traditions in addition to believing in Christ. What they were saying is, Faith in Christ is important, but it's not enough. For you to be fully a follower, you also have to submit to the Old Testament law, the Old Testament traditions, Old Testament ways. So that's where we left off this last week. And when we left things off, I got into the subject of the Judaizers. And I'd shared with you that that group has reformed and they have resettled, and they are repackaged in a new branch. There's a new group. They, they would not call themselves Judaizers. They would probably be offended if you called them this. But based upon their teachings, there is a new group. And I've shared last week that we dealt with people from that group multiple times at our church in Las Vegas, and that tonight I was going to share with you the name of this particular group. Now, I will say, when I left that as like a little cliffhanger, some of you could not stand yourselves this last week. So I began to get messages like, hey, is it this group? Is it this group? I, I like it. I like that. That's okay. I, I love it when people are curious enough to ask deeper questions. But before I share that information with you, I want to share just kind of my heart in this. I am not sharing this information to attack people. We got enough attacking going on within the church. I, I'm not sharing this information to be mean-spirited towards anyone. In fact, I believe with all of my heart, this, this is just me speaking, but I think there's probably some truth behind it. I believe with all of my heart, no one intentionally wants to be fooled. So people who get caught up in this many times are sincere in their beliefs. They think what they're doing is right. They believe they are following truth and that they're stepping in the right direction. So a lot of times there are a lot of sincere, nice people who, who they've just been misled. So the reason I'm, I'm sharing this with you is for three reasons. One, I want to warn you of the dangers that are associated with this group and with the teachings that come with that. A second reason is I want to prepare you in case you are confronted by somebody within this group. And the third reason is I want to encourage you to pray for people who get caught up in the teachings of this group. So what is the group? What's their name? Here it is. The Judaizers of the first century, they have regrouped and reformed under what is referred to as HRM, our Hebrew Roots Movement. Adherents to this group believe that the church 
has veered away from the true teachings of the Bible and specifically the Hebrew concepts within the Bible. So here's just a few of their core teachings. And there's a lot more than this, but I want to give you a smattering of this so that you understand what is at stake. That is, they teach that Christianity has been indoctrinated with Greek culture, with Roman philosophy, and with what is taught in churches today is little more than a pagan imitation. They say that Christ's death on the cross did not end the Mosaic Covenant. It renewed it, it expanded it, and it wrote that covenant on the hearts of all true followers. They teach that every Christian is to walk a Torah-observant life. The ordinances of the Mosaic Covenant must be the central focus of our lives as it was within the Old Testament. They teach that believers are to keep Sabbath, a literal Sabbath, on the seventh day, which would be on Saturday, that they are to celebrate the Jewish feasts and festivals, that they are to keep the dietary laws and restrictions, and they are to avoid the paganism of Christianity, otherwise referred to as Christmas and Easter and some of our other holidays that we celebrate. Most of those within this group, they would use the name Yeshua, or Yeshua, depending on who you're talking to, or they refer to Jesus or God as Yahweh, that is Y-H-W-H, as opposed to Jesus. They claim that that is the true name of Christ, true name of God, and those who do not call God accordingly are disobeying. They are walking outside of God's plan for them. Those who are in this group, they elevate the Torah as foundational teaching for the church, and they demote the New Testament to secondary importance. And if you press someone who is an adherent of the Hebrew Roots movement, you will find that they disregard completely the writings of the Apostle Paul. Now think about what that wipes out. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, all gone. So that's a smattering of their teachings. Now here's the tricky part behind it. Seeking to explore the parts of the Jewish faith that are pointing to Christ, seeking to understand how those festivals and how the covenants were were there in a beautiful way, pointing people to who would come. That can be an incredible opportunity to learn. It's a wonderful opportunity to study your Old Testament, to, to see why it was there and why it's important. It's a fantastic piece. There's nothing wrong with Gentile Christians and Jewish people coming together and even celebrating some of those things to learn more and to understand more. We had an opportunity when we were in Las Vegas, my wife and I, my girls, to go over to a rabbi's house in order to go through the Seder meal with them. And we were just sitting there and observing. But while they had meaning on one side, we were picking up meaning on another. And and by the way, when you sit there in one of those meals, there is a time of reading and a time of food, and then there's a time of different types of prayers, and then they go through and they quote this whole section together. And as I'm listening, I'm like, oh, wow, I did not know that. I can see this. And all of a sudden, there's some beautiful pieces that begin to pop up. Here's the thing. It is good for Christians to recognize and identify with Israel. But listen closely. 
But to identify with Israel is different than identifying as Israel. That's important. Gentile believers are not grafted into the Judaism of the Mosaic Covenants. But here's what the Apostle Paul will teach over in chapter 3. We are grafted into the seed and the faith of Abraham, which preceded the law and the Jewish customs. There is connection that is there. Gentile believers are fellow citizens with the saints. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. But if you're a Gentile, it doesn't mean you're a Jew once you get saved. There's still a distinction that is happening here. There is no need for either Jews nor Gentiles to feel the need to become what the other one is. It's, it, what we find in Scripture is Ephesians 2.15 says God has made Jews and Gentiles into one new man in Christ Jesus. So we're, we're in this family, in the body of Christ. And according to Galatians 3, it says there's neither Jew nor Gentile. It's one new man. Nowhere in the Bible are followers of Christ, Gentile followers of Christ, instructed to follow Levitical laws or Jewish customs. In fact, the opposite is taught. Write this reference off to the side. Romans chapter 7, verse 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Here's the thing. Jesus kept every ordinance of the Mosaic law completely fulfilling it. And just as making the final payment on a home fulfills the contract and ends the obligation to it, so Christ has made the final payment fulfilling the law and bringing an end to it for us to return to the shadows of the law while rejecting the substance of Christ is not a step towards enlightenment. It is an abandonment of the faith. Now, for 18 years, as we were in Las Vegas, I can remember at least five, maybe seven times that people from the Hebrew Roots movement would attack someone within the church or attack something about the church. There was multiple times that there would be small factions that would try to infiltrate our small groups. And they would pull people off to the side and they would begin to share these other teachings. And it wasn't long before those people were being confronted within the small groups. And I was so grateful to God for that. There was a time in which this was coming at us in so many different angles and it was confusing so many different people that we had to address it specifically. I've addressed this in messages before because it was an attack specifically against the church. It got so bad at some parts that we had to ban certain people off of our different social media accounts because they kept posting these ideas trying to use those places in order to mislead others. This is a group that can be aggressive within their beliefs. So why do we think we were kind of a target on this? Because we have unapologetically taught that we are no longer under the law, we are under grace. <laughs> we, we have been absolutely clear. It is not about religion, it is about relationship with Christ. 
So as we have confronted those things there, it doesn't mean that there's not the same types of things that are coming through churches right here in Albany in southwest Georgia. Now, let's go a little bit further in the purpose. We were in that final section, the purpose, and that is to confront Judaizers. We've addressed that to restate the essence of the gospel. Now I want you to go back. Let's start to pick each of these verses apart and see what's in them. Look at what it says in verse number 1. Paul, an apostle, through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. I want you to stop right there. Chapter 1, verse 1, introduction, very beginning, from jump, he is coming after you with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why is that so important that he is doing that? He's doing it in this section because the resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. Without the resurrection, Jesus is still dead. Without the resurrection, the tomb is still occupied. Without the resurrection, we are dead in our sins. We are still separated from God, and we are unable to experience eternal life. Everything is hinging on the resurrection. And the apostle Paul knew that. So he comes out with both barrels blazing. He's getting after them with the gospel, even in the introduction. I love it. So notice also what he says. Who raised Jesus from the dead. That is, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. A signature piece of the Apostle Paul's writings is his frequent mention of God and Father in relation to Jesus. Now, a part of that that you'll find, chapter 1, verse 4, is he's definitely referring to an emphasis there on understanding God as our Father. That, that's absolutely there. But that's not his primary focus. What you notice in Paul's writings is that he talks about the connection between God as Father in connection to Jesus because he's constantly going back showing the interconnectedness that is happening within the triune God. We have one God who has revealed himself in three persons. And for those who were saying, Jesus is not God, he keeps going back and saying, nope, he is one in essence. He is one in nature with God the Father. Different person in triune God, but he is one in nature, in essence. So he's constantly going back to that idea. So now look at, if you would, in verse number three. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two of the most precious words that are found in relation to the gospel are grace and peace. Grace is why you get to be saved. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Peace is the result of that salvation. It says in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. He, he goes on to say in verse number four, first part, that he gave himself for our sins. So as these believers are turning their back on the grace that has been extended to them, and they're, they're trying to return in many ways to a works-based righteousness, 
They're basically ignoring the sacrifice that had been made by Christ. He says Jesus gave himself for our sins. He didn't just give, you know, his time. He didn't just give his efforts. He didn't just give his attention. He gave himself. That is, he gave all of who he is in order to save all of who we were. Apart from Jesus' sacrificial death, his ministry for us would have displayed parts of the power of God. So think about this for just a moment. Jesus was still doing miracles. Jesus was doing miraculous things. So had it just been that, that he came and he did miracles, we would have known about the power of God. Had it been that he came and he taught, we would have understood truths about God. Just by the very nature of the fact that he came, God in human flesh, we understand some of the nature of who God is because when we see Christ, we're looking at God in human flesh. But the issue here is had he not died, we would have missed that redemptive part of the message of God. We would have missed the atoning work that God is wanting to do. Without his sacrifice on the cross, we would still be in our sins and we would not be able to escape the failures of our past. We could not work our way out of a sin problem. A sin problem has to be forgiven. That's the reason, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Had he not died, had he not paid that price, our preaching would be in vain, our faith would be worthless, and we would remain separated from our Creator. It is crucial that, that is a part of our gospel message. He died for our sins. Now it goes on to say, Another part in verse 4, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. <laughs> the gospel delivers believers from this present evil age. Anybody else find some joy in that? Like I'm finding joy in that? I'm going to tell you, you, you cannot open up a newspaper, you cannot look at anything online without fully recognizing that we are in a present evil age. In fact, the, the Greek word for deliver, it carries the idea of rescuing from danger. It's the same word that Peter used whenever he described God's deliverance of him out of prison over in Acts chapter 12, verse 11. In this sense, Jesus' death on the cross, it was a rescue operation. It was the only means possible so that men and women and boys and girls might be rescued from this evil, corrupt, sinful, depraved world. Praise God that he delivers us from this age. The word age, it does not refer to a period of time, but rather to a passing transitory system. So in this context, he is speaking of the evil satanic system that dominated the world since the fall and will continue to dominate the world until Christ calls his church home, until we get into end times. It's that same evil system. 
So while believers are not removed from this earth until they die or until Christ comes and takes us home, we are rescued from this present evil age the moment we place faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's why we are in this world. We're just not of this world. goes on to say, according to the will of our God and Father. This last week, this is the part that God stopped me on and got all over me in my study on again. I asked this question, how is it possible for any of us to be saved? I understand what Jesus did on the cross. My my question goes beyond that. Why did he do anything at all? How is it even possible If you think about what we brought to the party, sin, depravity, and brokenness, rebellion. If you think about every good thing that we think we've done, the Bible says it's like filthy rags in comparison to his righteousness. If you think about all of those promises, chances are we've all made some promises to God starting tomorrow. I promise I'm not going to do this. And those words don't even get out of our mouth before we're doing it again. If you think about all of those times that even knowing what we know, we, we have still fallen woefully short, even as a follower of Christ, even as a part of the redeemed. And you go back and you ask the question, why can any of us be saved? He gives you the answer right here. Why does he rescue anyone from this evil age? Here's what he says. We are rescued, we are saved, we are redeemed. Here it is. According to the will of our God and follower. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you are saved because of the sovereign, compassionate, loving will of the Father. If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. You know what we found out afterwards? It was not the will of the Father to remove the cup of suffering from his son. It was the will of the Father to allow his son to die so that you and I might be born again. And we might have life. You are a follower of Christ today because of what he has done for you because of the will of the Father for you. You were rescued because he chose to rescue you. It was his will. Here's how Jesus described this over in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Here it is. Who were born not of blood. You didn't get in because of where you were born nor the will of the flesh, like all of the the things you could muster inside, even in your sinful nature, you could not do this, nor of the will of man. You couldn't just say, all right, I'm going to choose him today. Here he says, but of God. You are where you are because God chose that. When, When that part gets in, think about what he gave us. He gave us his son. We're here because of his will. We're here because the Spirit drew us to himself. 
He's the one who paid the price. He's the one who has done everything that is necessary. The reason now that we end in this section, he now says, to whom be the glory forever, amen. Why is the glory for him forever? Because he's the one who did it. When we see that there's nothing that we could do to incline ourselves to God, but it's only what he has done for us, the glory keeps going to him, keeps going to him, keeps going to him. It's the glory to him forever. So let me conclude by saying throughout this letter, the Apostle Paul confronts distortions to the gospel that the Judaizers were trying to bring in. I'm glad that he confronted those distortions. Throughout this letter, we find that they were trying to add works to the finished work of Christ. He confronted them. They were trying to put the law back over top of believers, and he confronted them. Here's the thing. Paul was willing to confront lies to preserve truth. Every single follower of Jesus Christ has to be willing to do the same thing. How will the gospel go to the next generation if it gets distorted in ours? How can we share truth with our neighbors if we've allowed the lies of the enemy to creep in ourselves? Sometimes there can be very unpopular preaching that happens. And it's not unpopular because it's wrong. It's unpopular because it pushes back on some cultural narratives of the day. I'm going to say that again, Bartell. Sometimes it's wrong because it's pushing back on some of the cultural narratives that we're facing. We got to be okay. Oh, okay, here it is. Here it is. We have to stand for truth. It doesn't mean we have to be a jerk when we're doing it. So there, there are times, though, that a believer loses their, their position to speak because of how they said what they said. The Bible still says our words are to be seasoned with grace. We have to speak in grace, but we still have to speak truth. And sometimes that truth is going to upset some. And in that situation, you pray. You be gracious. You love people deeply. You ask God, because here's the thing. If somebody unloaded all the truths of the word of God on you at one time, I guarantee you there's been parts you've said, nope, not going that far, stopping right here. There's oftentimes God has to bring it in layer by layer, piece by piece, and oftentimes it is in seasons in which he has used circumstances in order to open our ears to truths we were unwilling to listen to last season. It's not that people are always turned away from truth. Give the Spirit of God an opportunity to massage the truth in. But we still have to be the ones to say, here's what the Word of God says, and unapologetically share that. So here's how we close out. If you're looking in your notes and you find that there's a whole lot of fill in the blanks and I've not even gotten there yet, listen. The lights will still be on at 10 p.m. tonight. No, I promise. It's just a couple of statements. Here they are. So in the opening five verses of Galatians, Paul covers four parts of our salvation. That is God's sovereign decree to save. It's by his will. Second, there's Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. 
That's an essential part of our salvation. The third is the appointment of the apostles to testify that salvation is possible through Christ. He begins by defending his apostolic credentials. And then the last part there is God's gift of grace and peace to those who believe in Jesus in verse number three. There's four parts of our salvation that we find listed in these first five verses. So what do we gain by studying the book of Galatians? Here's several things, and this is by no means an exhaustive list. We're taught key doctrines of our faith. Our relationship with God will never grow beyond our knowledge of God. Theology matters. And it really matters when confusion and distortions are setting in. Here's the next one. We're reminded of the power of the gospel when we study this. It's not just the good news that saves. It's the good news that sanctifies. As followers of Christ, we never outgrow the gospel. The fourth one, we're warned of variant teachings that can derail your faith. Our behavior flows out of our beliefs. What you truly believe will come out in your behavior. If you really think prayer changes things, you pray. A lot of times we say things with our lips, but our actions don't match it. If we really believe in the power of prayer, we have a prayer life to go along with it. It impacts our actions. And here's the last one. We're welcomed into our freedom in Christ. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So next week, we are going to pick up in the first of four warnings about corrupting the gospel. And we're going to see a biblical response to the question, can someone lose their salvation? I've talked to a lot of believers over the years who they are unsure if they could lose their salvation or they got a family member who's saying this. They're not sure, how do I address this? Next week, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul addresses that up front. We're also going to be pulling out this truth. That is, what you believe about the gospel determines every facet of your spiritual life. Not just some, all of it.